This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Today we're talking with Dr. Timothy Muldoon, who is at Boston College as a pastoral theologian. He's an author of a number of books on Ignatian spirituality, the theology of the laity, and marriage and family. Uh, Right now we're talking about a brand new book that comes out on Orbis Books called How to Remake the World Neighborhood by Neighborhood. And this is a concept that is, is absolutely intriguing to me. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a, a, a movement and, and a couple of books out about kind of retreating from the world into our cultural uh, familiarity to build a Catholic culture. And I think that there's a benefit to saying that as Catholics, we need to have a Catholic culture. But this is kind of the opposite idea, the idea of being leaven and going out into the world and remaking our communities by being Christ's presence not in our uh, our enclaves, but out in the neighborhoods where Christ is not necessarily made as manifest. Uh, I'm really intrigued by this idea, and I know that you're a co-author here. So tell me how uh, you came across this, um, specifically this movement and the organization that that you found that's doing it. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And TL, thank you for having me back on your show. Appreciate your ministry. The, the story uh, does have a direct connection to some work that I was doing under the auspices of Catholic Extension, which is mm-hmm. a missionary supporting organization uh, throughout the United States. And at the time, I was researching the organization that's uh, at the heart of this book. It's called Community Renewal International. And they had been nominated by the Catholic Diocese of Shreveport, Louisiana, for the annual Lumen Christi Award, which I'm sure your listeners know means the light of Christ. And so they were seen as an organization that was in a very deliberate way seeking to be, to use your metaphor and the biblical metaphor, leaven in their communities. And they were doing it incredibly um, effectively. And I know we'll drill down on that. So I'll just observe that they won the award that year. And this is a nationwide award. And and I was just fascinated. And, And to put this in context, I had been researching a number of just very vibrant, spirit-filled people and organizations that were just doing great work. But this one stood out to me because it was not just one or two people or even a small group. And it was not just, you know, kind of a limited scope. This really aimed to get to foundational questions about how to rebuild a society on an ethic of caring. And I'll say more about that later, but uh, but I think they they got it. And, and so my co-author, which was the founder of this organization, uh, his name is Mac McCarter, uh, a scholar, a, a gentleman, you know, had, had really thought this through. And so I came and I said, listen, Mac, somebody needs to write the book on this. And if nobody's doing it, I'll be your guy. And so he said, okay, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting to me that this is coming out of Shreveport, Louisiana, and this is the first time hearing about it because I have connection to the Diocese of Shreveport. My um, my cousin is the rector of the cathedral there uh, and for a while was the apostolic admin- uh, administrator in the absence of a bishop. So I'm, I'm going to have to get on his case about me not knowing about this. Um, so the problem uh, that, that Mac was solving is the problem that we all face today is we look around, we see that we are a divided people by uh, race and socioeconomics and 
politics and uh, gender and and so much else that's out there really kind of being dividing lines and wedges that we we have an us and them kind of mentality. And so the problem that that this organization seeks to face is the disunity that uh, that so permeates our society. Um, and they did it in a very interesting way. And I'd like you to talk about it. Basically, the, the way that they did it was intentional friendship. Yeah, yeah, and, that's, that's the secret sauce. I mean, that that was the insight. And so the way I tend to describe this to a lot of folks who are first encountering it is, yeah, I mean, it's the fact that every human being has the capacity to care. And, and we can certainly speak of that using our theological tradition to say, yes, well, God has made us this way. You know, we are created in the image and likeness of God. We have the capacity to act with um, caritas, if you use, you know, Aquinas' term, charity, with love. But caring, you know, caring is, is the word that tends to be at the center of this organization. And so if you take that basic insight, the next step, and this is the step I think that a lot of people miss, namely that isolated acts of caring are one thing, systematic yes. and foundational structures of caring are an altogether different thing. So many people get the first thing right. Again, they, you know, we, we care for our children, we care for our friends, we care for our spouses, we care for even people um, in our neighborhoods. But it, it really took some thinking to move to that more systematic level. How do you actually construct systems of caring that become, as it were, contagious and self-perpetuating? So that was, to me, the genius that Mac brought to the question. Not, not just, you know, are we caring people, but how can we be caring in a very connected way? And I feel like so often we are in this this time of year in in the Advent season, we tend to be thinking about uh, our charity regarding those who are less fortunate, who are um, you know there's all kinds of the, the angel trees and all the other things that we can provide for the needs and the and the desires of those who are less fortunate, um, and we think of charity in those. Uh, those opportunities that are presented to us often by the institutional church or by by our congregation, uh, for us to momentarily um, stretch ourselves a little bit and step out of our ordinary to provide a little bit extra. And then we step right back into our ordinary and we continue along our path. One of the things that sets this apart, and and I want to get into the meat of of what this structure looks like in a moment. But what's so different about it is an intentional move, not just for a moment of charity, but saying, I'm going to upend my entire world and enter into a new lifestyle of charity that doesn't step back into normal. This, this lifestyle of charity becomes the new normal because it's so important. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Now, I, I always, um, you know, find myself in, in a little bit of a, you know, I, I, I want to not scare people because, right. you know, that, that sounds, you know, to some people that sounds like, whoa, what have I signed up for here? Um, so on the one hand, yes, there's something very natural about, about our capacity to care. We've already talked about that. Uh, but but you're absolutely right that in a certain sense, it is kind of changing our view of things. And I'll just mention parenthetically, and, and you know this, that um, th that's what Christ was calling disciples to do is to change their perspective. So, so even the word that's usually translated repent in the Gospels, metanoiate in Greek, means to kind of change your perspective on things, look at things a little bit differently. 
but but it was always predicated on the basic observation, the kingdom of God is among you or before you or in your midst. You know, there's this kind of immediacy to it. So we're not talking about, you know, everybody's got to sign up to, you know, do, let's put it in scare quotes, charitable work, you know, for a certain number of hours each day. I mean, that's that's not the ask. The ask is simply be deliberate about your caring and make it visible. And, and to me, that was the original genius of the movement that community renewal began with, making uh, making the caring visible, especially in neighborhoods where maybe it was not very evident that that people were caring for one another. So literally, they started putting up yard signs, you know, that said "We care," and uh, and and so that first step led to others. And again, we'll have a chance to unpack those, but but that first step of kind of being deliberate about caring that to me is the real kind of change of, of insight that this movement invites every one of us to uh, to respond with a resounding yes, because, again, it's consistent with our baptismal call, you know, to to be caring towards others. I mean, think of the, you know, the, the, the great commandment, love God, love neighbor, and, and obviously those are, are, are deeply connected. So, so it's that kind of change. It's not, you know, suddenly re, you know, redo your entire daily, weekly schedule. Hopefully that's not quite as scary to as many people. So we've been kind of talking around this in a principle way, but I'd like to lay out the case for for what was done and what the results were in this very particular way of caring. Because the name of the book, again, is How to Remake the World, which is a big task, and it's the task that, that God's given to us as the church to sanctify the world. How to Remake the World, neighborhood by neighborhood. So um, what was the, what's kind of the, the use case that's there with CRI uh, in Shreveport and, and beyond? Yeah. And, and so the story began, and, and just to backtrack a little bit, you know, so your connections to Shreveport, uh, Mac McCarter, again, the founder, my co-author, um, made friends with the Catholic bishop of the time. And I should say that Mac was himself at the time a Protestant pastor. He'd been uh, pastoring uh, churches in North Texas for a number of years, came back to Shreveport, his hometown, and struck up a friendship with the local Catholic bishop who, at the time, you can't make this up, you know, according to God's great providence, it was William Friend, Bishop yep. William Friend. Uh, great man, um, you know, one of these, one of these, Bishops who, um, you know, like many in smaller dioceses, really have a sense of the missionary dimension of the church being yeah. leaven in the society. So we're back to that idea. So, so they became friends, and Bishop Friend recognized very quickly that Mac was on to something, and so he he opened every pulpit in his diocese to this Protestant pastor and said, "Go and 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 tell people about what you uh, have in mind." And, you know, recruit wildly. And, and he did that. And, and so you had this very strong investment. And I should even add, this is mentioned in the book, it was a check from William Friend that was the seed for starting Community Renewal International. So, so that money from the diocese actually launched it. And it's still to this day um, listed as, a, as an official ministry of the diocese. Now, it has a reach and has since, you know, connected with many other congregations, including a synagogue and many Protestant churches, et cetera, um, as well as schools and, and community groups, you know, many, many, many. But again, the bottom line is that it's predicated on this 
capacity of everybody to be caring individuals. And what Mac himself did to kind of launch it was go door to door in the most dangerous neighborhood of the city, which at the time was suffering from something like two homicides a week. So we're talking about a dangerous neighborhood. And he did it, he even said specifically, Saturday mornings, 10 a.m., because he knew the bad guys would be asleep, okay? So so he would (laughs) knock on doors and just say, hey, can we be friends, you know? And, and he'll, he'll admit that there was a certain naivete here, but, but there was a very deliberate strategy, which was unless somebody breaks the cycle of the fragmentation of the sense of balkanization among people, there, there have to be very deliberate acts of caring, which interrupt that cycle, make it visible, connect people with one another, and then see what happens. And that was effectively... Uh, the launch point. And over time then, it just, it started to build momentum and added these other layers, which I'll talk about eventually. But, but that, but that first initial, you know, kind of insight was, yes, we need to, we need to be deliberate about simply reaching out to our neighbors. Now you have described the introvert's nightmare, not only the person knocking on the door, but the person whose door is being knocked on. Um, We look at that and, and there is, kind of an insurmountable as as connected as we are quote unquote through social media the idea of walking up to a stranger's house and entering into their domain without knowing anything about them is absolutely terrifying sometimes even to extroverts uh, because the, the, there's the whole no soliciting or you're going to, you know, the, the, uh, can I tell you, have you found Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus? And there's this like innate fear of on the on the part of the knocker of how am I going to be received and on the part of the uh, the knocky on who is knocking on my door at this time of the day I don't recognize them they're what are they trying to sell me <laughs> yeah you're not talking about a recipe for success if you're just saying hey y'all let's do this together not going to work so yeah. so you know this this was the kind of you know founding moment but but what people actually sign up for now and i and i mean this quite literally they will uh, the folks in Shreveport will hand out postcards to people who visit and many visit and, and people are visiting from around the country and even around the world okay so so we're now 30 years down the road and and they right. will literally tell people sign up to be part of the so-called we care team and and in so doing what what they're asking people to do is say what is one thing that you do to care for someone else in your world all right so so you know to the introverts you know they're they're going to hear all right look i you know i i i make my wife coffee i'm using my example i do i do i do make my wife coffee all right so so that's an act of caring or uh, you know, we have an elderly neighbor down the road, and this was what, what I wrote on my card the first time I went there. I said, oh, well, you know, we, we very often will look after our elderly neighbor down the road, um, you know, when, when there's, you know, power outages or, you know, severe weather or anything like that. We'll, we'll check in on her, all right? And so that becomes the, I mean, if, if you want, the, you know, kind of ID badge that you're part of the We Care team. So it's not asking people to do these you know, profound acts. Now, some are moved to, to be more deeply engaged with other parts of the you know, whole we care enterprise. But on a fundamental level, again, it's about that first stage of making caring visible. You know, so, so people will 
they'll, they'll put a bumper sticker on their car, they'll put a yard sign on their lawn, they'll wear a little pin on their lapel, and it just says, we care. So it, what, what it's starting to do is, is, is change the perception. You know, so, so you know, TL, you, you already observed that there are lots of signs of decay in our community. So these then are meant to be very, very visible signs of growth in the community, almost to kind of just, you know, reverse the narrative a little bit. More and more people are, are caring visibly. And, and so, you know, you do it on your own terms. You don't, you don't have to, you know, go across the city and, and knock on strangers' doors. Yeah. Now, there is a, this is a first step that, you know, they're talking about putting the signs out that say we care. Um, but so often we, maybe we put signs out and that's the end of our outreach. We're, we're making a statement. We're letting people see what we believe, whatever that, that slogan happens to be. And it becomes little more than posting a tweet or putting up a, a social post. We're just making that social post in our front yard instead of somewhere else. So Obviously, this can can begin a conversation, but it's only the first step in the intentionality, and it's always meant to be a first step. It's not it's not an act in and of itself. It is an invitation that then that person who's putting the sign up has to then act on. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And and you know you're you're you know you're naming human nature here. It's very easy right. to be lazy. It's it just is. It's very easy to be lazy. It's always easier to do nothing. Now, so the the next stage in this, if you want. I've laid out kind of the first stage, and there are three stages, okay? So that, so what I've just named, the, the We Care team is the first stage, right? Yeah. So it's, it's simply inviting people to be intentional, deliberative about the question, do I choose to care? Answer, yes. And I should even add parenthetically again, that, that, you know, you don't have to be Christian. Obviously, many people act directly out of their baptismal call and say, yes, this is something that, that is something that I must do as, as part of my faithfulness. But, but this is, you know, across neighborhoods. And so for some, it's just, you know, I, I may not be religious, but I, but I want to care for people. Shreveport, by the way, as you know, is a, is a very religious city. And so they yeah. kind of speak the language. You know, they call themselves the buckle of the Bible belt. So, so they, they're, you know, in, in a certain way, sharing some of that language. Now, as community renewal has, has broadened into other parts of the country, most recently Washington, D.C., um, obviously the, the, you know, the, the, the mood and even the language changes a little bit, but, but the fundamental recognition, which I would argue is entirely consistent with our best theology, is that, you know, anyone can care. Again, we have, you know, God's image implanted in us, regardless of what we say we believe. So our actions testify to our capacity to care for one another. And so what the next stage of this is, is in something that they will call in Shreveport the, the Haven House Leadership Team. And think of these as kind of block leaders. Think of these as folks that will step up in um, a, a kind of leadership role. And it could literally be on you know a, a block, a city block. And they will... Um, touch base with all of their neighbors. So they'll, you know, maybe like, a, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, 40 family radius from where they live and just literally check in with, with one another on a regular basis. And, and that's the ask. And so it, it kind of stirs the pot, as it were. It, it, it keeps caring on people's minds 
such that over time, what we've seen, um, and, and this has been amply documented, what we've seen in, in a place like Shreveport and in, in some other places now um, is just a, a kind of tightening of social bonds. Mm-hmm. You know, so sociologists will refer to weak social ties being important for a community and, and even just establishing weak social ties, you know, where you, you know, see somebody down the street you know, that, that lives in a house near you and just say, hey, how you doing today? That kind of thing, which is no small thing, especially when you're starting to talk about neighborhoods, which once were places of great violence. Let me just kind of add, and I'll get to stage three in a minute, but, but even in the violent neighborhoods, the Shreveport Police Department has, re, uh, has reported an over 50% drop in crime because of community renewal, okay? So I'll, I'll come to that later, but, but just to give you an idea that, that the weak social ties become more strongly forged, you know? So people know their neighbors, they know them by name, they know their children, they know their spouses, they know, oh, um, you know, Mrs. Smith is is, um, under the weather today, they'll bring, you know, soup. So so it's an enhancing of those kind of of social ties, which, which again, every sociological study over the last, really, century, I'm thinking of the work of Robert Putnam in particular, the guy who wrote Bowling Alone back 20 years ago, um, he's documented this very, very well. Our weak social ties are in trouble in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah, and and so so what community renewal is doing is saying, okay, let's get even these weak social ties to be stronger because you need to have a foundation if you're going to have any kind of community, let alone a responsible political order, which you know is is even a different question. Yeah, Dr. Muldoon, as you're talking, this strikes me with shades of Dorothy Day. Uh, mm-hmm. of- building an intentional community that is that that has even though as you mentioned you can you don't have to have belief but for people who do have belief it is an incarnational way to express the fact that Christ lives within them right that I am now because I am part of the body of Christ um and and Christ is made incarnate to the world I therefore am going out and making Christ incarnate to the world today uh, and so Really, in some aspect, it's saying I'm going to to live the fullness of my faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in every inter- interaction and in every moment. I, I think that's right, and that's a that's a very appropriate uh, connection to draw to Dorothy Day and the Catholic work, Worker Movement. Uh, the other uh, person uh, of of you know some fame, I would uh, compare it to is Jane Addams, uh, famously of Hull House in Chicago, the Nobel Prize winner. Um, so both women had a strong sensibility about how living within a uh, disadvantaged community could be transformative. And so the third level, I mentioned that there were three levels. I've mentioned the We Care team, I've mentioned the Haven House leadership team, and the third level they call the Friendship House. And the Friendship House is, is in many ways parallel to a Catholic worker house or to a what was known as a settlement house in, um, in Jane Addams' era. Uh, in fact, there has been one scholar that has compared friendship houses to the settlement house movement, which was a remarkable story. Really, both Catholic workers, you know, which is still ongoing, and the settlement house movement had the same basic insight, which is that... Um, disadvantaged communities need particular care. So it's not it's not enough to even just kind of live at the level of these weak social ties that I was referring to either. They need a kind of, I might even call it social triage. You know, they, they, there are many things 
that are needed in those communities. It's not at all, I think, um, off topic to mention that, you know, these were some of the kinds of communities that Jesus hung out in, um, you know, because he saw that, you know, lepers needed a particular kind of care. Um, Even, you know, tax collectors and sinners, that language needed a particular kind of care. Um, So, you know, it's maybe somewhat different models here, but, but, you know, when we think about economically disadvantaged communities in particular, we, we are usually talking about a multiplication of social issues. Um, and, and so the strategy is really quite simple. They, they build a house. They literally will, will take you know, and build from scratch a house. The original ones were just houses in the neighborhood. But more recently, there's, there's now 10 in Shreveport with an 11th on the way. They, they construct these houses such that the entire first floor is meeting space, community space. And the entire second floor is family living space. And so we're talking about families that actually live there, you know, with adults, children, you know, actual families. And, and they are they are indigenous. They are from those neighborhoods. You know, so so they know the people. They know the challenges. They've grown up very often in those school systems and, and you know, understand the layers of challenges that their neighbors face. So they immediately are able to then be empowered to, you know, go door to door, invite children for after school programs to give them a safe place to study, to um, move them away from the attraction to, you know, drugs, gangs, whatever the case may be in these neighborhoods. Uh, but but they live there and, and they are doing the same kinds of work that, you know, Catholic workers are doing, that, you know, people in these settlement houses were doing in the early 20th century. Um, and 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 they and they've done amazing amazing work. So my 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 quote earlier about the reduction in crime um, in friendship house neighborhoods. All right. So again, this is this is data from the Shreveport Police Department. They have reported over a twenty year period something like fifty to fifty five percent drops in crime, and in some places almost elimination of violent crime. So the place where Mac McCarter first went door to door all those years ago, this was in 1994. Okay, so over uh, well nearly 30 years ago, that that neighborhood again two homicides a week, virtually no violent crime today. Virtually no violent crime because the, the, there are two friendship houses there, one for kids, one for adults, and and kind of anybody who needs it, and and they have provided that leaven within the society so that neighbors know one another. It's a lovely place to visit. I've been there a number of times. You can go talk to people. They host block parties on a regular basis. They hold after school programs. They bring adults back to their um, adult renewal academy where they get their high school diplomas. They have other kinds of classes, vocational um, support. Um, I mean, you name it, They're, they're connecting health resources, so they're addressing some of the social determinants of health, this from the largest healthcare system in Shreveport. Remarkable, remarkable stories, and and it's working. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy Muldoon uh, about the new book, How to Remake the World, Neighborhood by Neighborhood. It's available on Orbis Books, talking all about Community Renewal International and the work that they do. You can learn more at howtoremaketheworld.com. Come and join us on the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there's so much more to this conversation right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today uh, about a, a fascinating uh, case study for what it means when we take our faith seriously and live out our charism. Now, this is one particular way in which that's done by building community and and creating safe environments and really raising the community together. This is a community renewal international started out of Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, the book with Dr. Timothy Muldoon is how to remake the world neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, but in short, each of us is called to a particular charism and each of us, when the, 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 we who are baptized and, and have um, been further empowered through our confirmation, through the graces of our confirmation, we have a charism that we are called to. And when we live that out, it reverberates through the world in a way that that sanctifies the world. Uh, Vatican II talks about the church's job, the, the clergy, the, the bishops, priests, and deacons. Their role is to sanctify the church, but our role as the church is then to go out and sanctify the world. And this is just one way that that's being done. Uh, Dr. Timothy Muldoon, thank you again for joining us. It's really a pleasure. So uh, as you're talking, you talked through the three steps, the three kind of layers in the last segment. Um, one of the things that I want to look at and, and ask is how do we, in in that effort of going into these communities and uh, and creating safe environments and creating really stronger community cultures, how do we... Um, prevent ourselves from going in and being the uh, the upper-class saviors of that neighborhood? That's question number one. And question number two is related to it, and you can answer these in any way you wish. How do we prevent this from coming becoming a situation of gentrification where the neighborhood are so improved that the people who have lived there their whole lives can no longer afford to live there? Yeah, that, that's a really critically important question, TL, and I really appreciate you raising it because this is the the first thing that a lot of people hear is that. Uh, and and to be you know perfectly frank, the, um, the the accusation that comes from outside, not from those that know it, but from outside, is oh, this sounds like white saviorism, you know. So so uh, Mac is is a white person. I'm a white person. Um, the friendship neighborhood where he began uh, is mostly African American. And so immediately those kind of radars, you know, go up. This, this, you know, makes me uncomfortable. So the answer is quite simple. Uh, those that live in the neighborhoods where I described, you know, the need for these kind of intensive, um, you know, systems of caring, they're indigenous. They are, this is not gentrification. They are from those neighborhoods. So it's, it's not at all like anybody's helicoptering in with um, the solution, you know, to inner city problems. I'll use one very concrete example. Um, gentleman that uh, grew up in uh, Allendale is the name of this neighborhood in Shreveport. And I was sitting around a conference table uh, with him uh, during my first or second visit there. And he was describing his kind of, you know, skepticism uh, with regard to the early days of community renewal. And he was observing that what he'd seen previously were, you know, government programs coming in, you know, kind of throwing down some um, money for funding or, or this or that, you know, something might get built or something might get done and then whoosh, they're gone. And, and you know, nothing, you know, crickets after that. So, you know, he had this kind of healthy skepticism. And I should just add, 
Allendale was once, as you know, sadly, many African-American neighborhoods were thriving. We're talking about a place where like Cap Calloway once performed. You know, this, this, this was a thriving black neighborhood, you know, once upon a time. And then, you know, the ills that, that came in during the 70s and 80s that, that really decimated so many of our um, inner city um, neighbors, uh, neighborhoods. Um, it, it was just devastating. So, so you know, he'd, he'd grown up in this environment, so he had this kind of healthy skepticism. And his observation was this. He said, my mind changed when I saw them building a house because he said, this told me that they were here to stay. I mean, you don't, you don't build a house because obviously that's a financial investment. That's an investment on many, many levels. He said, I realized that they were here to stay. And long story short, um, within a few years, he himself had gotten very involved in community renewal and eventually became what are known as a community coordinator, i.e. he lived in one of these friendship houses. He was one of these guys that was going door to door and connecting neighbors. You know, so, so he said, okay, this I can work with. They're serious. They're not just kind of throwing money at a problem and then walking away. So it, it, I, from my perspective, that kind of answers both of your questions, because number one, again, it's not gentrification. And number two, um, it's, it's indigenous you know, people that are um, themselves just kind of drawing on their own resources to care for the people they've known for, in some cases, decades. And they're now empowered um, you know, to, to kind of have this, this social role where they can now, you know, again, connect people with their needs and, and, and really, you know, be a force for lifting up the community. Um, mm-hmm. If I can add one other story, TL, because this one is, is brand span. This is like cutting edge. Um, the, I mentioned the 11th Friendship House is being built now. Great story. It's uh, recounted in the book. But um, so it's, it's in uh, what's known as the MLK neighborhood in Shreveport. And there are two guys I'm going to mention. Um, one is um, a guy that um, went and, and you know got degrees uh, and and worked uh, and, and works now for Kansas City Southern Railroad. He's the vice president. Um, Kansas City Southern Railroad is funding this friendship house because you know they're a major corporation in the area. They you know many of their people live in this neighborhood and they see this as just a great thing for them for their business. So, so, so this guy, you know, was, was instrumental in moving along this Friendship House project. Turns out, and he didn't realize this until uh, the ground had been broken, that a former friend of his from, from his childhood is going to be the community coordinator in this Friendship House. And, and his name is Patrick Drew. So and a shout out to Patrick and Karanda, if you're listening, you know. I'm, I'm, so they're going to be the co- community coordinators here. Patrick grew up in the MLK neighborhood, ran around. He'll be the first to say, you know, the path I chose was not an awesome one. He did some jail time. You know, he got caught up in the wrong crowds, but he got out of uh, prison and, and he describes it this way. He says, you know, this neighborhood that I was once tearing down, now I'm building up, you know, because yeah. he's, he's, he's become a Pied Piper. The kids in the neighborhood are coming um, and, and, you know, he's got this just great outreach to the families there. So Patrick and Karanda are going to just be killing it in the MLK Friendship House. But, but this is, you know, in some ways a very typical story. And, and, and that's why I can say, you know, with, with perfect uh, comfort that it's not people coming in from the outside. It's just simply that those that have lived there now have the the, the place and the social role to, to lift up their neighbors. Well, and this is really 
indicative of successful evangelization and missionary work across the board. You've written a number of books on Ignatian spirituality, and as you look at the early Jesuits, as they were going over to to Asia, they they did everything they could, not just to kind of have the veneer of the culture, but to really— saturate themselves and kind of marinate in the culture to the point where they could be incarnate to the people there as close to being one of them as they could in the same way that Christ, when he came down and and took on flesh, he didn't just put on the veneer of humanity, but he became fully human in order to, to reach us and to bring us salvation. And then with every great missionary endeavor, the goal is always to have the indigenous, the people who are from that area, pick up the mantle of leadership and carry it on. Right? It can't just be a continual. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna keep using the term you used earlier. The keep white savioring this and keep throwing new people and new money at it, but really bringing something up from the ground up uh, that that heals the culture of that specific location, that society. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the very basic theology, if you want, that that's at work here is, uh, and, and certainly those early Jesuits recognized it. Matteo Ricci wrote about it quite eloquently uh, in China. You know, he he observed. You know, I'm not bringing God to anybody. God is already there. I mean, th- you know, th- there is nowhere in the world where God is not. You know, so so it really would be. A, a kind of arrogance to assume that anybody's bringing God somewhere, you know, as if, you know, God is not already present and working in some way. Because again, if, if God has made us in God's own image, then what we are doing is offering people the opportunity to, to as it were, activate it or, 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 or reflect on that in a way that brings them into communion with others who are similarly inclined to grow a culture of caring. So, so yes, I mean, there's, there's, I, I, I certainly recognize even what you started the show with, you know, the observation that, that there has been a move of, you know, kind of withdrawal from the world, you know, and, and, and I, I get that. I have friends who, who, you know, see that. And, and, you know, particularly if they're raising small children, there are, there are, you know, very significant things that, you know, they, they might be very concerned about. So, so I understand that that movement, but we also have to recognize that you know what what makes the church the church, the ecclesia in Greek, those that are called out, is is not fundamentally a withdrawal from the world. It's fundamentally a mission into the world. You know, so I mean, you know, think about the end of the Gospel of Matthew: go and preach the gospel to yeah. all nations. You know, so so Christianity from the get go had this profound movement outward. The, the word is apostolene, the verb in Greek. You know, literally, you know, we get the word apostles from this, from this uh, idea. You know, and, and, the, and the very strong emphasis is on that, yes, there is something here that ought to be of service to the entire world. And of course, if you're going to be doing that in a, in a caring way and, and even in a respectful way, it means not... Um, not hiding your own motivation as, as flowing out of your baptism, but it, but it also means that you're not bludgeoning people over the head who may be right. you know, coming at it slightly differently. I mentioned, for example, that you know, in, the, in the very early 
days of community renewal, there was outreach to various churches and congregations, but there was also an outreach to a synagogue. And so, you know, it, it, already in those early days, there was a sense of, okay, how can we, living out of this desire to transform the world, which, which Mac, by the way, had originally conceived of as church renewal before it was community renewal. You know, we saw this as kind of a intra-church thing, but but pretty quickly moved towards recognizing, no, we're, we're really trying to transform entire communities here. So, you know, how can we, in a respectful way, invite, you know, our, our you know, fellow pilgrims who are Jewish or our fellow pilgrims who aren't, you know, part of a church into the work of, of transforming communities to be based on care I mean, our theology tells us, well, sure, that's going to come out of, you know, our being created in God's image. Is it critical that others agree with us on that? No. Is it critical that they be capable of caring? Yes, and they are. And so that becomes at least the fruitful soil uh, within which, you know, more healthy communities can grow. Yeah. In our last few minutes here, the the last question I have is it would be easy to pick up this new book, How to Remake the World, Neighborhood by Neighborhood, available on Overst Books, uh, and or, or to go to the website howtoremaketheworld.com and to admire the work, to read the story, find it compelling, admire it, maybe even donate some money to it, and then move on. So how, what are maybe some early steps that we can take those baby steps entering into this life of continual charity and caritas charity yeah. um, that, that will take us beyond just being a spectator of someone else doing a good job? Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously an audacious title, right? I mean, how to make the world is, you know, it's, it's pretty audacious, um, and, uh, you know, Mac is himself, he's a big thinker um, and, and a very charismatic person. So, you know, he, he, he certainly um, believes that, that this model um, has legs. So in answer to your question, TL, um, you can sign up for the We Care team, you know? And, and so what, what I have tended to lead with, as we did in this conversation, is that everyone has the capacity for caring, and that on some level, this has to be a grassroots effort. You know, it can't just be that we kind of have an institution helicopter in, do some cool things yeah. and then move on. I mean, that, that's, that's not how it started. That's not how it goes. It, it just wouldn't work. So on some level, it has to be activating people's desire to care, but, but at least to share the insight that caring in a connected way is really a, a different ask. So practically speaking, um, I mentioned that there are people from different parts of the country that have come and actually gotten training in Shreveport. They've, they've gone to um, to this, they, they, they have a center for community renewal. Kim Mitchell, retired ar architect, is doing wonderful work training people in how to replicate the CRI model, right? And that's, and that's happened in, in various cities. Um, we've had visitors from Birmingham, Alabama, from uh, Austin, Texas, from Minneapolis, from DC, uh, from Shawnee, Oklahoma, from Palestine, Texas, a number of places. It's taken root in a couple of elementary schools. It's it's being developed on a university campus at Texas Christian University. Um, and I'm supposed to say, go frogs, by the way. <laughs> I'll edit that part out. <laughs> so, you know, they're still undefeated. Anyway, um, so so in a lot of ways, people are, are kind of taking the momentum and saying, okay, we can, we can use this model um, I am paying particular uh, attention to what's going on in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. 
Uh, St. Teresa of Avila Parish there. Shout out to Monsignor Ray West, who is just a you know, wonderful pastor. Deacon Tim Tillman, who uh, they are starting to kind of move on developing a model of renewal there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, I think it's possible to say, yeah, let's be part of this We Care team. Um, and if and if you know you're really moved by this, uh, then let's talk. I mean, the the website offers an opportunity to get in contact with us to think about how to even replicate some of those other levels that I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, our hope is is that people will really take this seriously and and start to you know build a a we care community wherever they live. The, the website again is how to remake the world.com. How to remake the world.com. The book is how to remake the world neighborhood by neighborhood. It's available right now on Orbis books. We've got a link to it over on our social media. Dr. Timothy Muldoon, a pastoral theologian out of Boston college. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Always a pleasure TL. Thank you for the invitation. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Timothy Muldoon, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And each and every week, we record an extra segment. We got about 13 extra minutes of conversation this week, and we will make those available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, helping to cover our expenses. And in gratitude, we record extra segments and have a few other extras that we make available to them. You can learn more there at OutsideTheWalls.com by clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar and looking through the various support levels, also looking through some of the older segments that are now available to some of our previous guests, and then consider whether or not you want to become a part of that support community. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, ecclesial documents, biblical commentaries, original languages, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus went around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and curing every disease and illness. At the sight of the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them because they were troubled and abandoned, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Then he summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to cure every disease and every illness. Jesus sent out these twelve after instructing them thus, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, make this proclamation, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons. Without cost you have received— Without cost, you are to give. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And like I said, we could not have planned this more perfectly, because here we have a society around us, and I believe that Jesus would look at our society in very much the same way that he looked at those in his day. First, they're troubled and abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. And he didn't go out to to 
prescribe something. He went out to to meet them where they were and to cure them and to uh, to provide them with shepherding, with care. And he instructed his disciples to do the same. But the first thing he tells them is this. The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. And so you and I, we should take up that call, and that should be ours as well. We should pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers. But then notice here in the reading, the very next thing that we see is that then Jesus sends out the 12. He summons them to him and sends them out. And so too, just as we are praying that the Lord would send out workers for the harvest, we also have to answer that call. And they're closing out that section as well. Without cost you have received, without cost you are to give. So I encourage you, as we're in this Advent season, consider the things that have been given to you by God. Consider the ways that he has been generous to you and ask him. Ask in your prayer time. Ask as you uh, spend time meditating on on Christmas, preparing yourself for the, uh, the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, God, in what ways have I received, and in what ways do you want me to answer your call, to give, to be one of those workers for the harvest? Our reading from church history comes from a sermon by St. Peter Chrysologus and falls along these same lines. When God saw the world falling to ruin because of fear, he immediately acted to call it back to himself with love. He invited it by his grace, preserved it by his love, and embraced it with compassion. When the earth had become hardened in evil, God sent the flood both to punish and to release it. He called Noah to be the father of a new era and urged him with kind words and showed that he trusted him. He gave him fatherly instruction about the present calamity and through his grace consoled him with hope for the future. But God did not merely issue commands, rather with Noah sharing the work he filled the ark with the future seed of the whole world. The sense of loving fellowship thus engendered removed servile fear, and a mutual love could continue to preserve what shared labor had affected. God called Abraham out of the heathen world, symbolically lengthening his name, and made him the father of all believers. God walked with him on his journeys, protected him in foreign lands, enriched him with earthly possessions, and honored him with victories. He made a covenant with him, saved him from harm, accepted his hospitality, and astonished him by giving him the offspring he had despaired of. Favored with so many graces and drawn by such great sweetness of divine love, Abraham was to learn to love God rather than fear him. And love rather than fear was to inspire his worship. God comforted Jacob by a dream during his flight, roused him to combat upon his return, and encircled him with a wrestler's embrace to teach him not to be afraid of the author of the conflict, but to love him. God called Moses as a father would, and with fatherly affection, invited him to become the liberator of his people. 
In all the events we have recalled, the flame of divine love enkindled human hearts, and its intoxication overflowed into men's senses. Wounded by love, they longed to look upon God with their bodily eyes. Yet how could our narrow human vision apprehend God, whom the whole world cannot contain? But the law of love is not concerned with what will be, what ought to be, what can be. Love does not reflect. It is unreasonable and knows no moderation. Love refuses to be consoled when, the, when its goal proves impossible, despises all hindrances to the attainment of its object. Love destroys the lover if he cannot obtain what he loves. Love follows its own promptings and does not think of right and wrong. Love inflames desire which impels it towards things that are forbidden. But why continue? It is intolerable for love not to see the object of its longing. That is why whatever reward they merited was nothing to the saints if they could not see the Lord. A love that desires to see God may not have reasonableness on its side, but it is the evidence of filial love. It gave Moses the temerity to say, If I have found favor in your eyes, show me your face. It inspired the psalmist to make the same prayer, Show me your face. Even the pagans made their images for this purpose. They wanted actually to see what they mistakenly revered. That reading comes from a homily by St. Peter Chrysologus, and here is the crux of it all. There are all kinds of reasons that we can be benevolent, all kinds of reasons we can give to those in need. But we use this word charity to talk about good deeds, to talk about uh, giving to the poor. But this word charity is at its essence, at its core, love. This is not just merely uh, charitable giving is not just the giving to the poor. It is the giving out of love. And so, too, when we are so inflamed by our love for God that it doesn't matter to us what the cost is. Freely we've received, freely we give. When we are so inflamed with love for God and we see Christ's face in the faces of the poor, we see Christ's face in the faces of those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who are are, uh, in dire need. When we see Christ's face in them and we are inflamed by love for Christ, it is out of that love that we give, out of that love that we go out into the field because the harvest is plentiful and there needs to be workers for the harvest. And so we work not out of merely sense of duty, but we work out of our passion and our compassion and our love for the God who first loved us. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and consider joining their numbers. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over at Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.